G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and good hunting. Okay, gentlemen, uh, firstly, good evening to you, Ian, and good morning to you, Steve. And the reason why it is good morning is Steve is in the Midlands of the United Kingdom, which makes him our first international guest here on the podcast so good morning to you steve good evening gentlemen <laughs> good to see you uh i'll lead off for a little while um to probably link this story steve and i steve is actually a, a queensland boy and I, if i remember correctly he's from king Roy or somewhere around that originally yeah greater darling downs mate brisbane right. brisbane king Roy, dolby area yeah so Steve and I uh, first met at a fishing tackle store that Steve used to work at. Um, and as these hap- hap- things happened, we started talking and we both realised that we were both also into hunting. And we actually ended up hunting a couple of times together out the back of uh, Toowoomba in uh, past uh, Dolby there, chasing pigs in crops. Um in fact, the only, to be honest, uh, the only time we actually ever got a pig was uh, on the, fir- the very first trip, on the very first night, we saw one in a, in a crop field. Um, and so we, we went out there a couple of times and hunted together. And then Steve made his way to the UK or back to the UK. And we kept in touch. And since that time, every time I've gone over to England, of course, I've caught up and uh, we've also hunted together. So that's a little bit of an intro of how we got here today. So enough about that. So I'll hand it over to you, Steve. So like most of our guests, why don't you give us a rundown of, of your hunting life today? Yeah, no worries, mate. Um, well, first of all, grew up in uh, in Bris Vegas, in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, and uh, was a very fortunate position as a young lad to have family in uh, the agricultural world and, and farming in uh you know, different parts of Queensland. So, I, um, yeah, my, my real home's just out past Dolby on the Dolby Kingaroy Road out there. And we had, uh, yeah, uh, small hold operations and, and, you know, crop and livestock farms uh, throughout Greater Queensland to the extent of, yeah, a few hundred thousand acres in total. So, uh, yeah, very fortunate to, uh, to grow up in the city, I suppose, and have city schooling and what have you. And then the weekends were out on the farm. So, no, that was my uh, first introduction to hunting and in some ways fishing as well uh back then i was again blessed to come from a uh, a reasonably rich hunting family and as much as you know it was also a way of life in those times especially on the land as well controlling ruined pig populations it's um you know it's changed over the years but uh, no that's that's basically uh yeah where i come from mate so hunting's been pretty varied in in australia or australasia i should say and uh and even more so since moving to the UK uh, nearly six years ago now. So, if I remember correctly, you, you, when you're in Australia, we, this is 
always a topic of conversation is that you you didn't hunt deer or goat until you actually left the country. Yeah, not a lot, mate. Uh, goats in the early days, yes, we had goats on the block there, but um, I think um, you know a lot of the cockies, the goat value price at market rose so aggressively that no one wanted to shoot and goats for a long time in Queensland mm. my family and families included in that so yeah look not done a lot of goat shooting to be honest um a little bit of deer in in uh, Queensland on the range there but very little mate I, I didn't get into most of deer hunting until I yeah came to the UK and Europe to be fair I I um a- again call it blessed but we, we had pigs on the on the back doorstep so it was always uh, feral pigs were number one species for us. And uh, as I say, different guises through kangaroo licensing over the last couple of decades and how that's changed. But I was involved in a bit of pro-roo shooting there in the late 90s and early 2000s as well. But that, you know, uh, take the enjoyment side out of it. That, that was there to do a job, if you like. That was the uh, the more industrial side of, um, yeah, the hunting that I've uh, I've been doing for a little while, mate. But, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think um, I can I can probably count on half a hand how many people we've uh, had on the podcast that Mark hasn't known through uh, chasing pigs somewhere around the country. Um, so, <laughs> so welcome to uh, Mark's group of uh, pig hunting friends. Um, and just so you know, I'm um, I'm uh, currently on the Darling Downs, uh, so I'm I live just south of Toowoomba, so uh, I know the area you're talking about really well. I've been up here for um, oh, she must be close to 15, 20 years now, so. Yeah, it's a lovely spot. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Can be harsh at times, and uh, seen plenty of rough times out there over the years as well, and and the floods and what have you. But um, plenty of droughts here and there. But um, yeah, look, it, it's uh, the Darling Downs and the Granite Belt will always be home to me as such. So yeah, nice. So uh, greater families from there. My father's side of the family is still majority of them are still out there, and and some of which still on the land. So mm. yes, mate. As I say, as, as a kid growing up. Um, I guess the benefits of the school, the the city life for school and further education along the way, and then having uh, having the downs and and property in Queensland to play on on the weekends and holidays wasn't a wasn't a bad place to uh, place and way to grow up as a young fella. Yeah. So you left um, left Australia, went over to the UK, and that's where you picked up hunting as a hobby more than a like you you talk about being the industrial side of hunting. Now you're into the 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 hobby side of hunting, I guess. Yeah, like a lot of us over the years, I think I've chopped and changed a bit between hunting and fishing at times. Mm. Um, I, uh, funnily enough, uh, left school and um, I was able to start a, uh, a school-based apprenticeship in uh, in the kitchen, actually, so chef by trade originally. Um, so, yes, mate, through the, the latter part of the 90s, I was um, yeah, finishing up high school and doing my trade as an apprentice chef. Um, I went on and did a course in in business and went to uni and ended up doing business and economics and hotel management for whatever reason. Well, it was part of the chef chefing thing at the time. So, I um yeah after leaving school I was I was able to uh, which is about the time similar time I think ninety eight ninety nine my family sold the majority shares of their farms in the state, um, which coincided with me yeah starting full time work outside of uh, college and also doing uni on the side, mate and. Uh, so yeah, further education sort of started there at that time, and and as I say, we certainly hunted as kids, but uh, it's a different kind of hunting that we know now. For um, sure, it, it was For more sure. yeah. Uh, look, it's the hunting industry and certainly the fishing industry has evolved pretty heavily over the last uh, couple of decades, and 
Yeah, it wasn't so much a, a sport, if it's right to call it that back then. But, um, you know, it was a pastime, it was a way of life, and it, it's just a job that needed doing, if I'm honest. Um, mm. Yes, yeah, so always, you know, young fellas and out in the sticks and, and rifles, and that always interests me, like like you lads, I'm sure. But um, So, yeah, mate, I, I chopped a bit between fishing and hunting, and the, the era where I met Mark, um, well, after I came out of the kitchens, I spent a couple of years in the kitchens and had the opportunity I met my wife in Australia, actually, while we were doing a bit of travelling and working uh, up on Fraser Island. Uh, it would have been in 2001. And uh, yet, long story short, but uh, fell in love with an English lass and decided to move across the uh, the world, mate. So I moved across to England in, in 2001, well, actually to the Isle of Man, which was where her family was based at the time. Mm. And uh, stayed in the kitchens at that time, so I was still still cooking, and we were fortunate to uh, part own or have an opportunity to go in with the Manx National Heritage and part own a, a restaurant, um, cafe restaurant on the west coast there. So yeah, we we started uh, relaunched this cafe restaurant, um, and yeah, it, it did good things over a couple of years, mate. And and my uh, my visa, I was able to do limited hunting on the Isle of Man. To be honest, there's a bit more you know wing bird shooting and pheasant and partridge shooting more so than, um, you know, game shooting as such. Uh, so, yeah, we uh, came back. Basically, my visa ran out over there, and, and um, Sally, my wife, and I decided that, that where we wanted to, to spend our, our lives or the next stage of our lives at that time uh, and where we thought the best opportunity was to raise a young family was back in Queensland. So in uh, 2003, midway through 2003, I think it was, we moved back to Queensland and, and spent the next 10 years, decade there, and... That's about that time I met Mark, I think it was. I, I couldn't tell you exactly, Mark. It's been been a few moons go past since then, mate. But, uh, yeah, I worked in a, a prominent uh, fishing tackle shop in, in Brisbane City. And, uh, yeah, that's where we first met, mate. So, I, um, yeah, have always tried to keep in touch with hunting. I think when I was working in the fishing store in the early days there, it was um, fishing chops have changed a lot too. You know, hunting and fishing chops once upon a time were more combined destinations you went to buy both goods but they sort of separated in the early 2000s and hunting shops became dedicated hunting shops and, and fishing went its way as well and uh, with the odd exception naturally in your rural areas but yeah that's that's where mark and i first met so i'm, I'm off in the weeds a little bit here but it, it's a long story i've gone back and forth from the uk a couple of times but um yeah a, a lovely 10-year period there working working in the tackle industry as such and behind the scenes worked with a few of the manufacturers and import companies as well so Yes, mate. I'm, uh, you know, we, we touched on earlier. I'm uh, very fortunate, I suppose, to be able to make a, a career out of the, the hunting industry, um, which has been nice. And as they say, you know, you, you don't work another day if you if you're getting up and doing something you love. So, and I've, uh, yeah, been able to turn fishing and hunting into a, a reasonable career over the last nearly 17 years now. So last time you went back over, uh, that's when you and I had you know met. You moved back to the UK, and you actually, if I remember correctly, you got a, a pretty good opportunity to to move into the industry over there. Yeah, absolutely. When we moved back to the UK, uh, yeah, five going six years ago, it's um. I'd finished, while I say the trades are different, many of the import wholesale companies import in Australia and also the UK import both fishing, uh, hunting and general outdoor, you know, goods. So 
I did know a few people in the trade over here, and, and at that time there were a couple of companies, one relatively in its infancy in the UK that was started up from an Australian company, and, and I'm here now, Highland Outdoors, and the second was a company called Raytrade. So um, when, I, when I first moved to the UK, I was uh, yeah fortunate enough to get in touch, or, or Josh Raymond, I should say, reached out to me, the owner of Raytrade, and yeah, it told me all about this opportunity and a new business that they were uh, branching out into the, the UK industry and trade and setting up a facility at that time. And, uh, yeah, we're looking for a couple of blokes on the road to, to uh, yeah, get it up and going, mate. So I was, I was very fortunate, right time, right place, if you if you want to call it that, to, uh, I actually, yeah, long story short, had, had a job with a, a sister company to one of the fishing businesses I worked for back in Australia. So that, that's what I was coming over here, and I had that interview the day after my interview at, at Raytrade. So... For one reason or another, decided I'd um, I'd been in the on the fishing side of the industry for that decade prior to leaving Australia, and I was I was ready for change. It's fair to say, um, and yeah, it was a, a wonderful opportunity at the time, I guess, to as a lad, you know, coming across from the other side of the world to to join the hunting industry. And I think, um, you know, anyone out there that's interested in in joining the trade will, will possibly have found out it's it's not the easiest industry to get into, if I'm honest. It's um, you know, it, it is a big industry. It's a big pastime for a lot of people out there, but it's still very much a cottage industry as well. Um, and oftentimes, who you know is, uh, you know, helps getting into the trade as such. But uh, you know yourself, you know, how many positions do you see for, you know, sales representatives in hunting and fishing tackle? Because I, I know if you put that advert in the paper in Queensland, mate, you'd, uh, you'd have blokes knocking your door down for a crack at it. So, um, yeah, you're, you're right in saying that uh, when I first came to the UK, I, I was. Uh, you're very fortunate to have a couple opportunities to get into the industry over here and it was something I loved and yeah went on and, and worked a stint at uh, at Ray Trade and yeah just finished as the the general manager of that business at the start of COVID so I was there a little over four years and we started a uh, yeah started from a small shed in a uh, in a nice part of the country down in Hampshire on a private estate and, and grew it into uh, yeah one of the five largest import wholesale companies in the UK trade so mm. yeah it's, uh, it continues to go, do good things down there and, uh, yeah, good bunch of guys. Um, they've um, Due to the brands that they import, they've had a fair shake-up the last couple of years. The Remington Agency was always one of, the, one of their biggest and there's, you know, there is and have been a lot of changes to that uh, Remington umbrella group, if you want to call it that. So, no, but they're, they're uh, yeah, they're doing their thing now and when COVID broke, an opportunity came up to, um, yeah, to move to Highland Outdoors. So, I'm, I'm, located in the midlands here in the uk and if you look at a map of england basically put a spot right in the middle and that's about where we are um the, the office at ray trade was down in hampshire so it, uh, yeah, a little over a two hour commute each way each day so which uh -huh. after a few years uh -huh. starts to to pay its toll a little bit and um i, I should it's fair to say too that uh, the first couple of years i was there I was actually on the road so i, I ran half the, the uk the southern area sales um so yeah it was a uh, coming from another country i suppose is a, a lovely way to get to meet people and all of a sudden you're out there servicing the requirements of all the gun shops in the country so you know you're, you're talking about the things you love and meeting a whole new network of folks out there and with it comes opportunities and friendships to boot so no look it, uh a lovely way for me to settle in as much as anything uh, and and yeah open my eyes to the, the hunting and, and fishing opportunities that are over here but no, I've, again, I'm off in the weeds a bit. I, um, yeah, since moving, an opportunity at the start of COVID last year, COVID hit the impact of the UK pretty heavily in March, mm. April of last year. And uh, 
yeah, look, easy to sit back and criticise the way the government's gone about it, and this isn't about that. We don't need to talk about that now. But, um, yeah, look, it, changes were forced on a lot of businesses. A lot of people didn't know which direction, you know, their trades and industries were going, and, and literally everything came to a grinding halt, you know. Um, and when you've got a country uh, the size of the UK that fits in Australia many, many times, landmass size, and you fill it up with 68, 69 million people, um, you got a lot of people in a small little area not knowing what's going on, and uh, yeah, it, it was it was challenging, mate. So aside from that, I uh, the the general manager, well, the now CEO of Highland Outdoors is a gent by the name of John Bright, um, and Bright he's very well known in the Australian gun trade. He ran that the business Highland Sporting in Australia for for many years, and he had the opportunity a few years prior to me coming over to come and set up you know this business here in the uk um john and i have been friends for yeah 16 nearly going 17 years now and i've certainly david and john fuller met them first at trade shows uh well fishing trade show about eight eight or nine years ago so uh, the business has not been unfamiliar to me shall we say and um yeah we've always had a, a friendly rivalry so the uh the guys have tried to get me across to, to work for them a couple of times and i think with uh with COVID, how things were going and and our latest wife and i had our youngest daughter at that time too when when the COVID was going crazy um yeah the, the opportunity was there and uh, I, I made the jump across to highland mate so i'm i'm now only just over 15 minutes from home and uh in what i believe will be um yeah the, the uk's premier import wholesale company in the next 18 months so when you when you talk two hours each way in, in traffic, mate, that's two hours each way in UK traffic too, which is yeah. <laughs> just we've got no concept of traffic till you get there. <laughs> oh, well, I no, certainly don't. I, I, I have about I don't know if I, if I was even to bother going to the office uh, on a day, I might have two sets of traffic lights and. and I'm not sure I'd really have to stop at either of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Different so, no, look, it's um, all uh, challenging and, um, it, look, yeah, COVID just threw a spanner in the works basically with all business. But um, I, I most certainly don't use that as an excuse. It's it's a wonderful opportunity I've had um, that presented, well, now nearly 16 months ago since I've joined Holland Outdoors, how, how time flies. But, um yeah, it's uh, so far we've uh, yeah we've done some great things in the industry, but I'll always look back on that that time that I had at, at Ray Trade there very fondly. Um, it's not often you get a, an opportunity to fly across the world into the great unknown, and uh, you know someone offers you a job doing something you love and and a means to meet the industry and the trade over here, and uh, yeah, become deeply entrenched in that, I guess, and um, yeah, it's. No, it, good times, really, really good times. So mm. I, uh, I talk about a two-hour drive to and from work. People ask you, how, how do you do that, especially in the dark and in the rain and in winter? Well, I guess if you love it enough and, you know, you really want to stamp your mark on the game, then you've got to put in the hard yards. So there was a few years of that, and I'm very grateful for it and, and do look back on it very fondly. But, um, mm. and the, yes, um, life and marches that, on, I guess. Opportunities come for all of us and, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, in the in the lead up to this, um, you talked about how the industry was, well, it's 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 busy again, right? So it's your busiest time. You've you've got some things going on in the background, but um, what what why is it all of a sudden become busy? Have there been some things going on with 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 
COVID restrictions easing? Is it just people getting used to life again? Is it naturally a busy time? What's what's going on over there that's made this such a busy period? Yeah, a, a little bit of all that, mate. So you've got, um, yeah, most certainly, look, the impact of, um, of COVID drew. A, a lot of hunters couldn't travel beyond their, you know, uh, immediate boundary, shall we say. Now, some of that was drawn up as your uh, as your county line. It was very difficult to cross county lines there when COVID was at its peak and we're in lockdown. Um, you had to be able to justify why you were out there shooting or hunting at the time. Uh, and it, it had to be a pretty fair justification or you, you risk the, the losing your license. Um, so yeah, it, look, it's, it's fair to say no one, very few people had the opportunity to do a lot of hunting over that 12 month period when we're, when COVID was in its height. So I think now that, um, you know, uh, so certainly the COVID guidelines have relaxed somewhat. Yes, naturally, uh, everyone's been tied up and wanting to, to get out there and do some, uh, some hunting. Absolutely. Um, it also coincides with uh, the northern hemisphere hunting season really kicks off at the you know the roebuck rut, um, yep. which is you know May June July just depending on where you are from Europe side and and likewise in the US. So the second half of the year tends to be the you know where our hunting season goes pretty good. Uh, starting to talk about the fall or autumn months and through winter is primarily when we're we're all deer stalking and, and hunting our deer. So yeah, it's um. Naturally, uh, with Christmas time and what have you as well, you've got the the retail shops are stocking up pretty heavily in the run up to Christmas time and Black Friday, which I still can't get my head around. Once once upon a time, an American American thing that seems to have gone global these days, and it's yeah. massive massive sales, and uh, it's really shaken up the trade in Europe, especially over the last couple of years. So we're we're in the midst of that Black Friday sales started today here in the UK and Europe. Um, so yeah, mate, you've got a, a few things like that that have all happened at the same sort of time that's led to everyone pretty busy. I think uh, businesses have opened back up. Um, you know, customers are allowed back in retail stores without many COVID guidelines now. So your high street stores done it pretty tough over the last couple of years, um, especially the non-essentials like hunting and fishing shops. You know, it's uh, a bit different to the supermarkets. I mean, they've they've made hay while the the, the uh, the sun was shining as such during the peak of the period. So I think they, they all reported record sales across your supermarkets but and grocery chains. But um, yeah, the old high street hunting shop that's often multi-generational in its second, third generation now did it pretty tough with their doors all but closed for a period of six to seven months in different blocks throughout that 12 months. So yeah, mate, it's nice to see doors back open. It's nice to see everyone back out and enjoying the outdoors again and, and back out and doing some hunting at, at what's coming into the prime time for our season here. Speaking of that, yeah. um, so having the opportunity hunting with you over in the UK a few times, I mean, I, I've, I've seen the differences firsthand, but I'm sure that you've seen, uh, you know, lots of different interpretations of what hunting is especially from starting from, as you said, basically pest destruction in rural, you know, Queensland to what hunting looks like in the UK. So it'd be really quite interesting to, to get your take on what hunting is all about in the UK and, and the different types and, and, you know, where people can get into hunting if they're visiting or, they're, or, or like yourself, they're thinking about moving over there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, mate. Look, I think it's it's fair to say that hunting, uh, certainly in England, um, 
you know, it's been deeply entrenched in in their history for for many, many times. So it's it's been a a huge part of the English countryside and and the UK countryside even further. But um, so, I mean, there's always been a very rich, you know, hunting population and uh, in the UK, although uh, these days licensing and that it's not. It's not the easiest place on the planet to uh, to own firearms, if I'm absolutely honest. And I'll I'll throw a couple of stats at you because it will give you a rough idea. We we talked about the population there before, round figure. Let's call it 68 million in the UK versus I don't know what Australia is currently at now. 20, 25 20 something, 25 million. Well, there's more licensed firearms holders than there are in Australia than than in the UK, believe it or not. So we've. Uh, yeah, the licences in the UK work two different ways. So you've got a shotgun certificate, uh, which is a lot easier to obtain, uh, not too dissimilar to home or Australia in the sense that you uh, you need to have security for the, your uh, firearms within your house, and and that's inspected by the police here, and and you go through a, a basic application to to acquire a shotgun, basically, and it's it's a lot easier to obtain from that sense but also because the justification for having a shotgun is quite simply that you want to go and shoot clays at your local playground on the weekend and what have you so which is very very accessible in all counties across the uk uh fire so and for that reason i think uh, i had a brief look at the end of last year i think shotgun certificate holders in the uk were about six hundred thousand, six hundred twenty thousand. But then you talk about firearms, so let's call that a you know rimfire rifle or centerfire rifle as such. Uh, we've only got 136,000 license holders in the UK from a population of 68 million. So it's um, that's incredible. You know, it is densely populated, and that's one of the reasons it's tough to get a firearms license. Um, but uh, yeah, 168,000 makes it you know one of the smaller of all the major Western countries. It makes it one of the smallest. Uh, you know, license holders per capita out there. Uh, so yeah, with that in mind, I, I uh, the industry or hunting opportunities uh, for people living in the UK are far greater on the shotgun side. Um, so if you want to break down sporting clays or different clay shooting disciplines, there are oh, nu- numerous grounds in every county around the UK that are really accessible and really great for the youth to get into and a lot more ladies entering that side of the sport too, which has been fantastic. Um, and supporting that, that predominantly, look, you can clay shoot year round, of course, but in the middle of winter time, you, you haven't got sun up till uh, 9.30. Most grounds won't open until about 11 due to noise restrictions. Um, and then they're shut again by 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So reasonably limited time through winter. So the majority of your, your sporting clays and clay grounds are open for, uh, you know, eight or nine months of the year, basically. And, and again, they are predominantly through that spring and, uh, and summer period. So we're just seeing the end of clay season now, and and a lot of people, uh, it's fair to say, a lot of keen game shooters shoot clays to keep their eye in for the game season, which has just kicked off in the last couple of months, depending on your species. But we have grouse that start in uh, in early August these days, so you've got different disciplines in your grouse, driven grouse or uh, or walked up grouse as such, uh, and then our pheasant and partridge shooting as well in the UK is very well known for. Uh, for its driven shooting, um, so that and that's the the side of uh, I guess that goes back to, you know, the, the old English days, the kings and and what have you in the past have always been pretty keen on their driven driven shooting, and it's a way of involving the whole local community into a, a day's sporting, if you like, and and that's still widely received around a lot of the country, and unfortunately coming under pretty heavy criticism at the moment um, as a sport as such. 
So, yeah, that's the, the shotgun side of the season. As I say, the industry is very much divided into two. You either shoot, you know, rifles and, and rimfire or target shooting or you're shooting shotguns, be it clay or, or bird shooting of some sort. And I, I skipped over the wildfowl season there too. We've got a very good wildfowl industry uh, in the UK as well. Relatively limited season, but kicks off in, in September type time and uh, well, it does kicks off in September. And there's good wildfowl opportunities uh, and shooting right around the UK, both foreshore and inland. Uh, and then on the rifle side of the industry, or the, or the you know the hunting side, as as we better know it, um, I think your medium-bodied game, so six deer species in the UK, uh, yeah, the majority of licensed shooters. I'll backtrack again. The majority of licensed firearms shooters in the UK are probably shooting foxes and rabbits, to be honest, uh, smaller caliber and varmint caliber stuff, and controlling the foxes for the driven shoots is a is a huge chore and, and most people with a rifle over here at some stage will be spending a fair bit of time out late at night controlling the fox populations when when your birds are in their rearing stage and ready to release for the season um, and in addition to that you've got the deer stalking side now I, I'd hazard a guess at you know that that 120 odd thousand uh, or whatever uh, licensed rifle holders you really only have a few thousand that are active stalkers in the UK so deer stalkers um, and with the six species that are available you got your red deer seeker deer and fallow deer um, and we've got our our muntjac deer roe deer and chinese water deer are your six species um they look they all vary in their seasons between you know bucks or stags and and um you know does and hinds but uh yeah there, there are opportunities for um folks in the UK to be able to shoot their, their six deer species each season, even um, providing they've got access to the land. And that that's probably the, the trickiest part for locals is uh, gaining access to the land with that many people in a relatively small area. And, and most deer population, oh, sorry, most of the counties around the countryside that have deer, good deer populations aren't aren't necessarily that big. And, uh, you know, they're small hold properties, as Mark said, the um, the opportunity to see a couple of times um, but no I, i'm uh, rambling on a bit there, there are good opportunities i suppose to shoot all your deer species we do have foxes we do have rabbits and hares as well uh, and then the driven side of the industry on your birds yeah and um how easy is it or how difficult is it for a visitor to get involved like do you know the process for someone like myself that heads over there for a holiday with the family to go and you know potentially chase some of these species that we don't have here in australia yeah absolutely or, or, any, not, or any of them for that matter yeah look no no different to traveling to most well eu countries mate in the sense that it, it's a little trickier if you're wanting to bring your own firearm at the moment and since brexit that's offered up a few more challenges as well carrying that throughout the uk and europe but if you were to to step off the plane with the family on a holiday and want to do a little bit of hunting yeah you'd, you'd be heavily reliant on the services of an outfitter or guide to be honest yeah yep. so or uh, you know a, a same again a, a primary industries landholder who might have a, a firearms certificate or license and you could go under instruction and shoot on their land yeah yeah okay yep. not not a lot dissimilar to um, someone traveling to australia from abroad as well so providing you're with a you know the, the appropriate licensed holder at the time and under their supervision um yeah we, we don't have any public land hunting opportunities in the uk currently it's fair to say so all the hunting is divided up onto yeah, either private land or uh the forestry commission 
um, and the Forestry Commission often lease out the land to syndicates. Um, so it is possible for anyone moving to the UK and wanting to get into hunting to join a local syndicate that might be in their area. Um, typically, the syndicates have between eight and a dozen uh, people on them, and they operate on uh, you know on properties from 600 to a few thousand acres in size. And it's not too dissimilar to the way you would register if you were going public land hunting as such in, in Australia. So it's divided up. Um, you would let the syndicate run, uh, person who runs the syndicate know that, you know, when you would like to go into the block and when you'll be hunting. And they'll, they'll control who's in there at any one time and, and divide it up. No, again, yeah, not too dissimilar to how you guys go down the pillager and places like that. It's it's a similar sort of system in that sense. But, but no, travelling from abroad, there are good shooting opportunities. Um, probably easier on the shotgun side to be honest it's much easier to pick up a day's driven shooting or a day's walked up shooting in your local area um, than it is on on the rifle side for deer but um no mate if uh, if the desire is there you can you can make it happen yeah, yeah. very good certainly i mean I, I can attest to that because um i think my wife has finally figured out that's one of the reasons i like or well, i did like over a couple of years because about six months out, the emails would start, okay, we're going to arrive on this date, let's start planning and we'd be, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And uh, both wing shooting with shotgun and, and also rifle shooting for deer um, is something that I've greatly enjoyed. I think one of the things that most people would find really interesting is that uh, the idea that heavily, you know, densely populated in the way that they've uh, um, approached noise so basically in 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 the uk uh, you your rifle is suppressed it that's it you know it's kind of the opposite it has to be suppressed as opposed to you know what we what we regard here is as a you know as, a, as an open rifle that's actually a a, a no-go in the, the uk in most cases isn't that right steve you know it's actually got to be suppressed or in most cases it does yeah yeah, certainly, certainly does, mate. It's uh, it's the norm. Put it that way. So all, all rifles, what ninety nine percent of rifles from factory, all come threaded into the UK market. You know, so everyone is sets up when you apply for a uh, a new slot on your license or to acquire a new firearm. Um, you also apply for a, a moderator, sound moderator, silencer, suppressor. Uh, at the same time for that firearm. So yeah, it's it's. Uh, Definitely recommended, uh, more pleasant for the average person with uh, felt recoil to shoot as well and more pleasant on the hearing and also, like you say, with the dense populations. Uh, yeah, w wandering out at uh, quarter past five in the morning on your local farm and letting rip with a 300 wind mag unsuppressed is not recommended. So you <laughs> may not be welcome back there next time. <laughs> it blows my mind that, you know, you go around the world and different governments have such different ideas about that subject. I mean, yeah. it'll turn us all into ninjas. That's why we're not allowed. We'll all be yeah. running around in the dark with our suppressed firearms uh, doing bad things. Okay. Look, until the professional user group in Australia continues to press from the uh, the hearing and um, you know that that side of it, I don't think you're going to see too many changes. I, look, there's I hear rumours at the moment that we might see some relaxing or or changes to policies in different states from next year. But um, yeah, we'll see, mate. I, I yeah, it, it absolutely dumbfounds me what the government over there thinks a suppressor does. Uh, it, <laughs> I think it makes the thing silent or something like that. I, I don't know. But uh, 
it just you know for anyone that's not shot one on a on a moderate sized uh, center fire cartridge it just knocks the crack out of it that's that's all it really does uh, still goes bang like a normal rifle just uh, yeah not at dangerous levels to one your ears or uh, two you know, other people using the countryside so no it's um Sorry. I think that's really important. That that idea is other people. That's one of the great challenges that I've always. It's taken me a little while to get you. Every time, even takes you a little while to realise how close to the public you are when you, when you're either wing shooting or rifle shooting. You know, you it's it's all in a very confined space. I remember the first time I ever uh, shot, wing shot in the UK, we were shooting pigeons from a blind. And we were literally behind a church and we were, you know, it was like the church was 200 metres away. You could hear the bells ringing. You could see the people going into the church and we're sitting there and there was people walking with the dogs behind us and, and you just really, that, that proximity to other people. And that last uh, farm shoot we did, you know, when we we did the big walk for the day and there was that one time where, we came around the corner and up there was a golf course and over there was the motorway and we were walking, you know, there's 12, 12 guys with shotguns just walk on the side of the motorway. You know, it was just, it's just a really different feel away that, that, that the idea of space and that how everyone is very, very close to each other. So, you know, you realise the importance or, or, or the value of a suppressor there because you are right next to other people. You know, it's like it'd be basically like if there was a dog walking track between, you know, between the benches and the uh, and the shop there at Belmont Rifle Range. You know, it's it's like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and uh, farmers have zero control on their land over the public footpaths that go through them. That's important to note too. So you can, you know, quite often it's not uncommon to be stalking in, especially roe deer, and especially in the rut time when they're. You know, the lads are out chasing the ladies around the middle of um, what at the time tends to be freshly cut fields because they're normally bailing about that same sort of time. Um, it's not uncommon for you to be on the sticks or trying to make your final approach into a uh, into a road buck and, um, yeah, have a walker and a dog walk straight through the middle of the field and you just got a down tool and sit away. So, yeah, uh, consideration for other people using the countryside is is paramount uh, and it's the fastest way to get yourself into trouble. So, yeah, when you talk about suppressors, I, I think it's it's that too. It, it is the most definitely more considerate for, uh, yeah, all, all other users that are out there in the outdoors. And as Mark says, so densely populated and um, the small holds or farms tend to be on average a lot smaller than what we're used to in Australia. Um, now that that's got its its benefits as well, I suppose. And look, know, knowing your the property that you're on, the boundaries, where the public access areas are, is is critical. It's a must do. And a lot of instances, you'll see a lot more uh, high seat shooting as well, or hunting from high seats. And and that's not just because European people are lazy by nature. That that's also that, uh, you know that one they're set up in prominent locations but two if you think start thinking about your angles a shot that um you know either passes through a, a beast or, or misses and straight into the ground obviously has less chance of ricochet when it's coming from a steep angle at relatively close distance so yeah it, it you will see more high seat hunting happens in in more dense populations uh you know neighboring cities and what have you but um yeah yeah just uh very different, certainly different to the uh, yeah sixteen odd thousand acres I, I grew up on and, and still call home these days. It's uh, yes, the backstop is still critical, and you're looking for one all the time. But uh, 
yeah, it's unlikely that uh, in the in the path of that might also be two or three towns, cities, a football ground, and a McDonald's. So, yes, mate, I, I'm conscious at all times of where you're hunting, most definitely. But uh, again, the, the flip side to that is, I guess, hunting opportunities. I found in the UK, um, off the whim or off the cuff, can be a lot easier because you're. It's a lot easier to access. You can knock off work in, in summertime and within minutes be from your workplace to the ground that you're stalking on and uh, stalk bucks in the evening for an hour or two after work. So very, uh, yeah, it's as opposed to certainly anyone living in the city and, and I speak predominantly of Queensland at home, but if, if you're in Brisbane City, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a hump out to the uh, to the country until you're starting to get into some reasonable hunting areas or where you might want to go, you know, camping and hunting for a weekend. and. Um, there's a bit more time putting into preparation for the trip and packing down and what have you afterwards. So we are fortunate where um, the majority of the year round, a rifle lives under my desk, unloaded and safe, I'll point out, while I'm at work. And uh, should the opportunity present for 45 minutes on the way home, I can just stop with a set of sticks and go for a wander around a couple of fields and, and see what's poking about. So I guess, um, yeah, horses for course, you know, pros and cons, but... Um, no, it's uh, it's different. It's different, certainly different to uh, rural Australia, shall I say? And that's very true. So I remember actually the first when you were down in Hampton there, that first afternoon we went out. Like we didn't really even need to take the car. We could have walked out of the driveway and across the across across the track. Then you know, but we just we drove for some reason or not. Maybe because we you had the new car at the time. We just wanted to check it out or something. But literally. We came out of the driveway, down, pulled over and said, okay, we're into it. And, you know, literally you could still see your office window from where we started hunting. And that yeah. was, you know, that was an amazing experience. Just literally, okay, we're on, let's go. And we and, and sure enough, we saw deer straight away. Of course, they rode deer at the time, so they were out of season, but they were there. And uh, yeah. and that was the first time I actually saw a muntjac. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I went over to hunt Munt Jack and I'd never actually seen one in the flesh. And that was that first afternoon, literally with the inside of your office, we saw that first Munt Jack. And the other interesting thing is sticks, um, you know, shooting off sticks. Again, that's uh, that's a v very much the norm, isn't it, over in the UK? Oh, definitely. And look, much like uh, much like South Africa too, Mozambique, and that's you are heavily reliant on, you know, being efficient off a set of sticks, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, without the, the opportunity isn't always there or afforded to be able to lay down and get on a bipod. Um, you don't always have a tree or, or something you can lean on either. So I guess for, for any like what we would call lowland stalking or the stalking we've done markets, um, most definitely beneficial to, to have a set of sticks. And majority of people um, practice on sticks regularly and, and the, most of your shots, if you're, you're deer stalking throughout a season, would happen off a set of sticks. Yeah. Um, I, I guess it's important for me to note to what my comments about um, earlier about you know the population and hunting and what we've just talked about that differs very drastically once you get up past the borders and into Scotland so hunting Scotland's a lot more like hunting New Zealand and Australia they're, they're planned trips away you're into you know vast patches of environment you're, you're up on the bends up on the hills and the cliffs and the mountain ranges up there um, so yeah, a, a lot more like you know hunting the, the ranges in New Zealand or or even Queensland in some places. So yeah, a bit different, bit different up there. And um, yeah, something I'd recommend if uh, if you ever get the opportunity and you're over to go and shoot a red stag in Scotland is pretty special. Yeah, last time last time I was over there, we headed through to Sky, and that um, 
that valley on the way through to the Isle of Skye is just stunning. Um, yeah. And we stopped. I don't know how many times we stopped because we saw, you know, um, herds of deer heading up through there. They're just just along the roadside, you know, off into the paddocks and things like that. And I thought, oh well, I've heard that this is all the land off the side of the road. It's actually not private land. It's uh, part of the crown land or whatever you'll call it over there for a, yeah. you know, maybe a few hundred meters back until you get to a fence line. So I thought, oh, we'll just we'll just pull the car up here and we'll we'll, we'll take the camera out and we'll. We'll trudge on up there and see how close we can get to some of these stags and take some nice photos. Well, man, was I in a bog of wet, mushy shit pretty fast up there. <laughs> we, were, we were very well stuck in there and we were on foot. But it was pretty funny. But the stags were spectacular. Just just the, what you could see off the side of the road was just unreal. Oh, absolutely. And look, Sky's a, a heck of a destination and growing in popularity each year. So there's a different sort of pilgrimage of blokes from, from the south here that go up there each year um, for the season. Um, I've returned. There's a group of us that always go up to Scotland every year for the stags, and we've just only returned a couple of weeks ago, a couple of three weeks ago. Um, and, um, yeah, look, at Scotland even in itself, you've got your lowland or forestry stags and then you've got up on the open hill or, or, or the, the bends as they call them up there. Look, anything in Scotland that starts with a bend is a bloody big hill and you'd want to have your boots and, and gear up to the scratch. So it's, um, yeah, some interesting country up there. And when, when you get a uh, your forestry blocks, especially your uncut forestry blocks up on the side of the hills, it's it's the toughest going I've ever had for hunting, mate, because you're... Um, one, it's bloody hilly and that's hard work and it takes it out of you. But two, you, the, the underfoot never gets an opportunity to dry out. So you're constantly mid-chin deep marching through bogs and yeah, mm. heather bogs and mm. peat bogs and you name it. So it, it's tough going, but it's also some of the most rewarding hunting I've done as well. So watching stags on, on daybreak, you know, round up their hinds and get ready to push them back into the timber up on the hill is... Uh, is pretty special so yeah see them, see them roaring in first light in the morning and you know your good hinds are, uh sorry good stags are often holding yeah north of 30 and 40 hinds on their own up there and uh yeah word cut out for them and to to watch them bellowing and roaring on on the sun up mate as they're trying to push all the hinds back into cover is pretty special so mm. yeah it's, it's a nice place um lovely people very accommodating very used to traveling hunters from around the world as well um so yeah it's a it's a good season and seeker deer becoming um, yeah, more and more widely spread up through the borders and into Scotland now as well. And with that has brought a, a bit of a hybrid line, if you like, that's uh, less desirable, shall we say. But um, it's uh, if you've never stalked seeker deer, uh, seeing a, a, hearing a seeker deer call or squeal just on, uh, on daybreak is something that's absolutely spine shivering stuff. Um, yeah, they can... They can get you, uh, it's like someone's walked over your grave, mate, when you hear them. And uh, of all the deer I've, I've stalked, they're by far the most intelligent as well. They're pretty crafty deer to, to the extent of a recent, we were hunting a, um, oh, the, a, a corner of a forestry block, if you want to call it that, and it had a, a couple of nice rides cut in it. And we're at the junction of these rides and probably the box is about 140 yards, big deer box up in the air back from the junction of this ride. And uh yeah, funny, a little seeker stag, he, he had a nice seeker stag, had two young fellas with him and uh, he stopped, uh, had him on the binoculars, he stopped just about uh, five yards inside the heavy cover and could just make him out, had a thermal on me too, late afternoon, could just make out he was there and he sent the two young stags out across the ride first, um, sent them across and they very tentatively walked across the ride. Uh, he came out right to the edge of the tree, turned his head and looked straight up at the deer box 
turn back and back back into the timber and away. Now, I don't know, mate. I don't know if they were that intelligent, but uh, he, they knew something. He knew something wasn't quite right, and he's out of there. Um, but, yeah, to, to hear them squeal at that time of day is, uh, yeah, is ab- absolutely sends shivers up your spine. So, yeah, nice opportunity. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the little-known Irish uh, seeker herd is uh, growing in popularity globally, and it, it's one of the nicest uh, one of the nicest places you can go and, uh, and hunt seeker stags these days is uh, in Southern Ireland at the moment. They're, um, yeah, a little different over there today only in mainland UK as well in the sense they do get out on the hill more like reds. Uh, but yeah, look, a, a lovely deer, but um, just, just starting to come out of season for reds and seekers at the moment. So your, your red season for the stags in Scotland's finished now. They're, they're onto the hinds up there and England runs a slightly different season on our lowland stags. But yeah. Uh, yeah, a, a wonderful place, as I say, if, uh, if anyone's uh, really into their uh, deer stalking and is venturing over to the UK, I, I can't highly recommend enough. They um, they try and come during a red stayed rut up, uh, up in Scotland. It's pretty special. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting in that hot seat, probably the first, I think it's the first time I'd ever been in, a, in in that kind of position, sitting up in that seat on that, uh, on that, big, that big property down there in Hampshire that we're on. And we, yeah. we we were in a couple of them, and when that afternoon we were on that that one of the ones looking over the a vehicle track. Uh, one of the things that you don't realise, I would suggest to anyone who's thinking about it, is how cold it gets in a <laughs> seat when you're just sitting there not moving. Man, I was that was cold. That that's one of those points where I remember, you know, I remember that cold for a while. It's just. It was just it just kind of sat on top of you. You you were sitting there, you're not moving much, you're trying to keep kind of trying to keep your concentration up and it's you know, mid midwinter. It's not snowing, but boy was it cold up in those seats. And uh that was something yeah, because I remember I think it was we were there with Richard and he kept on saying, Oh, take this, wear this, wear this, we're there and I was like, you know, type thing going, What the hell am I gonna do that? Ten minutes up in there, okay, I understand now. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you said uh, uh, that we might think of you guys as lazy European hunters. I think you're the most incredibly patient people out there to be able to sit up <laughs> on those stands in the cold. Oh, I don't know if I could do it. I'm a, I like Mate, to I'll, I'll just fucking store <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, it, it's um, look, coming from our, our background and hunting at home. I, I, I like to move to him for a big lad. I, I like being on the hill and moving, to be honest. But it's, it's not my idea of hunting, but I... I as we touched on earlier, due to some of the locations and, and populations and where these herds are that need controlling, they're often on the side of the property Mark spoke of then. It's a it's a large property, private property, um, owned by some royalty down in the south of England. And there's nearly, uh, I think there's nearly 7,000 acres there or, or thereabouts, but it, it's borders, uh, two of its borders are major motorways. Um, and you've, you've got a herd of a few hundred deer on, on that block in, as such uh, that need controlling. And so unfortunately, yeah, it is a means of control. It's it's most definitely not my favourite way to hunt. And, and each season, to be honest, unless we're culling fallow deer come January, February type time, I yeah, we'll do everything I can not to go and sit in a high seat, to be honest. I, I'd rather go for a wander and stalk a, a munt jack in the woods or something like that for a couple of hours at, at dusk or, uh, or dawn than and sit up in the high seat but uh look with, with that comes up other opportunities for the less able people to still be able to enjoy their hunting as well there's uh it's a great way to teach you know new people to the sport to uh, get them up in a high seat in a 
environment that largely you can control what's going on. So, yeah, as I say, pros and cons. But no, when uh, when the breeze is up and it's winter time, you'd uh, you'd want to be rugged up, or uh, yeah, you're going to get a bit cool up there, guys. Yeah, it's interesting. There must be a, a fairly oh, I'll call it dense population of animals to be able to you know put a high seed up there and. I'm not going to say guarantee it, but you see a lot of uh, stuff on YouTube, be it the US or or in the UK, people up in the high seats and they're, you know, they're, they're seeing the deer fairly frequently. So they know they're around. Uh, a lot of yeah. the places that we hunt, you know, you can go to blocks that are, you know, 100,000 hectares, not bump into a deer. Um, you know they're there, but you might not see them. You're probably not going to sit in a high seat for too long just because the population is not so dense. Or, or is that just the magic of YouTube? And various other platforms, you know, how often do you sit in a high seat oh. and see nothing? Yeah, look, look classic uh, YouTube and Facebook, uh, you only see the success, successful hunts, pardon me. Yep. Um, right. But uh, look, that said as well, the, the US, a lot of the time, high seats are often used over baits too, which is fair to say. Um, so which brings a whole different element. Uh, not done like that here in the UK. But um, yeah, look, in uh, certainly... Areas so high seat shooting. There's there's not a lot of it done for your seeker, your red deer. To be honest, it's it's often a means of southern parts of the UK controlling the fallow deer. Um, yes, you you see muntjac from your high seats definitely, but Chinese water deer, another one you don't tend to shoot from from a high seat as such. They're always stalked. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh oh look, mate, you you have your days when when the fallow numbers are up and you're on a, you've drawn a prominent high seat. There might be a few of you out culling. Um, you know, you can have the whole herd move through there. You can see 70, 80, 150 animals over a couple of hour period that are passing through the block. Um, uh, when, you're, when you're controlling in that environment, you'll often have maybe a dozen or 15 high seats and hunters up in them for an afternoon. Uh, and you'll be trying to, between you, you know, move the deer around that particular block and thin down the numbers or, or remove what you're trying to from the, from the herd. And, uh, you draw a bad seat and you sat up there for four hours and seeing nothing but squirrels and leaves, mate. So and hearing people so. having a good time. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So yeah, look, uh, use use predominantly by a lot of us that love our active stalking. The high seats are used predominantly just for culling at that that time of year where you need to get on top of the fellow. Yeah, okay. I, I I've always my experience is I've always seen deer when we've gone out. Not always got deer, but certainly seen deer. I mean, every time we went out. Even one of the high seats, I mean, and one of the high seats we saw fallow. The other high seat we did see a, a roe deer, saw a muntjac um, each time. So, and I mean, I think that one morning we went out, we stumbled into a fallow herd, and they were, I remember that we were coming through the trees, and there was just deer everywhere. They were just running yep. all over us, and they were close. So that you, I, I think too, also that's the, the I suppose that's the whilst there's a massive you know or a very high level of density in terms of human density smaller block big deer herds you can get quite you know quite a high density in the deer numbers as well and that's why of course fallow are culled so heavily as they are because so we we went out on a hunt once we actually went out with a couple of colors they took us out they, they weren't culling that particular day but we went out and i think you shot a couple of fallow i shot one fallow and that's what they were. They were they were professional colours, and they were shooting mostly with handheld thermals, uh, yep. off sticks with suppressors. And the idea was just to flatten those numbers. So they were just like we do here with pigs and goats and other animals. They're there to flatten those deer numbers. Yeah, 
Yeah, you, you can break that side of the game down into probably three sectors. You've got your forestry commissions that are all around the UK, widely spread. Um, and, you know, the forestry commission primarily there is to maintain the forest and, and control uh, that environment and which timber has been taken out of there. And each of those prominent forestry blocks around the country normally have a, a forestry commission deer stalker that's associated with it to control the numbers in, in those forests in their region. So you've got, oh, I couldn't tell you in total, but um, there'd have to be over 100 Forestry Commission stalkers just in, in the UK that work for Forestry England. Uh, you've then got the two chap, like the two chaps that Mark just mentioned, you've got contract shooters that contract two different divisions of the forestry, both England and Scotland, who these who these blokes were. And a lot of guys often do that as their second job. So they um, you know, have their day job and then work as a commission stalker on the weekends or turn their stalking more so into another opportunity to to make a bit of money as well while they're out in the in the countryside and then you've got your uh you're just uh, your average weekend uh hunter and stalker so that enjoys it but um yeah yeah it's a uh is it it's probably worth noting too this in the uk the and certainly parts of europe germany is probably the, the most difficult to get your license to shoot a lot of game, be that boar and deer. But here in the UK, we've got an opportunity to do our, our um, DSC-1 courses, they're called. It's a certification in uh, in a deer course. And if you've attended and passed that course, that also gives you your basics into food hygiene and allows you to sell the carcass and enter that into the food chain as well. So um, for a lot of blokes that are pretty keen stalkers and enjoy doing it, they'll often do their DSC-1 and 2 courses, two different levels there. And it's basically just a hunter certification that you know what you're looking for. You're harvesting the right animal. Um, you can identify any issues that the animal has, whether that's in nodes or you know physical appearance, or and whether that carcass is safe then to put into the food chain. Um, you then tag that and sign that animal off, grallic it, and then you've got the opportunity to sell that uh, into your, your meatworks plants or or into what we know as game dealers over here. Um, the game dealers then, uh, you know, either export that carcass over into Europe predominantly, or uh, it goes back into the butcher cycle here in the UK and goes out to UK butchers. So, well, I guess uh, from that sense, um, you know, it, it's easier for for blokes to turn hunting into uh, not only their pastime, but a means of being able to, you know, pay for that new rifle or that new fancy bit of glass that they're using by uh, putting a bit of carcass back into the food cycle and chain. So come, and that, that predominantly is done through, yeah, fallow time. And uh, and that's where all the, the Forestry Commission stalkers that I just spoke about earlier, that's where all their deer goes back into. It goes into a couple of major meatworks plants and then it goes, uh, a lot of it gets exported or goes back into the food chain here in the UK. So yeah, but um, certainly in Southern England and the area Mark touched on earlier where we saw those large herds of fallow deer and, and that's the place that neighbours are joining motorways. The road traffic incidents with deer is quite high in the UK, especially in the winter months from now through till mid-March time. Um, so yeah, another very important reason for having to control the numbers and population and uh, as soon as, uh, you know, like, like any animal, like a pig run that's beat or anything, as soon as they bust through fence and know they've got a means of crossing the, the motorway to another block of forestry or what have you they'll tend to run that path each day as you know part of their beat and uh, yeah unfortunately um, there's a lot of people driving around the countryside too so yeah there's regular call outs and by means of doing that course I mentioned the deer course um, once you've done one of those and you're certified as such uh, 
you can then pass your details on to the local authorities who, uh, when there's road traffic incidences like that, you can get a call out of the blue asking you to go and attend it and dispatch the, the animal. So the police can't do that on site. So they'll call you out and you dispatch and dispose of the carcass then from the animal. So, yeah, it's... um. Yeah, a, a little different, I suppose, in uh, what we're used to hunting at home and, you know, going out with, with your backpack or camping and, and going for a weekend shooting or, or hunting in the countryside at home. It's, uh, yeah, it takes a different light, I suppose, in, in this environment over here. Different, no, yeah. no one better than the other. Both got their pros and cons. But, um, yeah. yeah, but that, that yeah, process but... you talk about of um, getting a call out to a, an injured animal, what a great way to, to create advocacy for the hunter, you know, helping the general population out, you know, that stresses a lot of people out. They run into an animal, they've smashed their car up, you know, there's, you know, a half-dead thing on the side of the road that, you know, they don't know how to deal with. There's not too many people who are going to crack it on the head with a tire iron. Being able to call no. someone to do that is, you know, it's a good service. That's Yeah, it is, mate. It is. And, and you're, you're very right. I've only been called out twice and I've got my certificate nearly four years ago now. I've only been called out twice in all that time and both times were young ladies Um and both in, yeah, didn't didn't really know what to do. And understandably, look, they've just, uh, one of them had hit a, a, um, a reasonable size seeker stag. And he, he was, he would have gone, uh, oh, growlicked and head off at somewhere around low 70 kilos in weight. So, you know, with all his bits intact, he's a mid 80 kilo animal and uh, hitting the front end of a relatively small car on a, on a dark country lane at night time. It's, um, you it know, for a... Is it a young lass or a new driver on the road to to have that happen to them is uh, well, what do you do? They they don't teach that stuff at school, do they? So no. I was just say, is it inappropriate to show up to an incident like that with a big smile on your face, looking at the head that you're about to take home? <laughs> like, I'm sorry, love, about your car. <laughs> Holy Jesus! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to control yourself. That's right. Can you take a selfie for me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Just hold this camera so, for me. Perfect. Yeah. Just. just yeah. Look, uh, yeah. So they get get away from the get the trees behind us. That's it. That's it. That's it. Love, take the photo. Perfect. Yeah, there's an English comedy <laughs> uh, episode here somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, look, um, and like you say, I think with the spotlight on on hunting in general uh, at the moment globally, not not just here. I think it's a. Yeah. Uh, it's nice for, yeah, as you remarked, it's nice for hunters to be able to give something back to the community and another means of being able to help out there. So, yeah, that's the. All, all's well that ends well, I guess, mate. So, oh, but, sure. um, I know from, from my personal experience that, that that difference does take some getting used to. I remember that we were on the we were on the farm uh, hunting with with Ian, um, uh, hunting for the month jack, and uh, I, I I don't ever take gear over. Only as I said, I've got I've got my personal gear that I take over, but I basically leave leave everything here, so I'm borrowing gear. And I think I was shooting a, a right hand 270 off sticks with the suppressor. And I think it was it was your rifle, or yes, I can't remember, but the, the, the standard process over there is chambered round with safety on. So I'm sitting there on these sticks. How comes the monk jack uh, doe? runs across and I, here comes the buck. So the first thing I do is I pick the rifle off the sticks. So this, you know, Ian kind of goes, no, mate, <laughs> back on the sticks. And then second thing I do is I, I basically cycle the action and eject out a perfectly good barns onto the ground. Everyone's going, what are you doing? And I, oh, sorry. <laughs> and then 
managed managed to get all that on a right hand rifle on left hand shoulder and hit that and somehow managed to hit that that Monty. But yeah, that is it's really quite interesting when you hunt in a, a wholly different environment and not only is the environment different, but also the way people go around hunting and and the, and the processes. It's 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 really whilst for me at the time, obviously it was um, it was funny because we still got the deer anyway. Uh, it really was an eye opener that you know there's not just one way of doing this, and there's no there's no like oh that's the way that's the way we hunt here, so that's the correct way. There's a whole range of ways that are the correct way depending on the circumstance you find yourself in in the culture, and even right you know right down to the, the way that people approach safety with rifles and things like that. So I've always really enjoyed that period part of the the, the experience of going to, to the UK. And I know that you've had a little bit of um, exposure to Scotland and also Europe. So do you see the differences in, in how people hunt in England to how they hunt in Scotland and even over into Europe as well? Oh, most definitely, yeah. And um, you, as you say, right back to the safety element of it, it's um, where where we were stalking with you was um, oh, relatively, well, that particular property you mentioned is a, relatively small hold opportunities are fleeting for deer you've, you've got um, often at time seconds not not minutes or or time to uh, plan a stalk and what have you you know the opportunity with muntjac um a few of us refer to them what they're a bit like the Viet Cong, mate you can be walking along then all of a sudden the little buggers just jump out of the timber and they're there then seconds later they're gone again you know yeah. what I mean? what's going on here but uh, they're a funny little critter the first time you see them so i it's you've got to approach that you know all systems ready to go um and in the safest way possible when that you're in that environment you know whoever's carrying the rifle will always walk first um typically and the bloke that's with you if you've got a guide or someone along with you will carry your sticks normally and as soon as you see an animal not no different to anyone who's hunted planes game or anything in, in africa will uh you know drop drop your sticks down roughly in the right position you'll drop the rifle on the sticks and away you go um now that that changes pretty drastically even just in the uk so anything on the open hill in scotland um i, I would never have a, a chambered round as such because you've got time you're you're, you're up there you've, you've spied your your animals and you've planned your stalk and it, from the from the first time sighting of those it could be a couple of hours till you've worked yourself into that right position where you're in a, a position of, you know to take the car, the, the beast um so you know there, there is no benefit whatsoever to having a chambered round in that that situation and, and that's often the same um some of the higher country in wales where there's some good goats to be shot and, and the odd rough sheep over there to be shot as well same situation wherever there's the wherever time is afforded i suppose we'd still recommend that you know there's not a chambered round in, in the rifle um now that that changes drastically move over the continent with your driven shooting well the first thing you do when you get on the stand when that whistle goes there's one up the spout and safety on and it's uh you know firearm pointing in a in a safe direction for the duration of that drive until the uh the, the whistle or the horn goes off at the end and then you you know take that chambered round out of the cartridge um uh, sorry out, out of the chamber and, and away you go um so yeah a, a little different it does change different different countries and and often there's the language barrier as well which at times uh, is challenging to overcome uh, he's telling you to do one thing and you're doing the opposite most of the time um so yeah i, I think look safety first and, and as we're all taught from kids it, it's uh 
you know, a mechanical safety on a rifle's the the last resort, really. So safety is uh, by, by way of us approaching it, and you know how we safely handle the firearm, pointing in safe direction, all, all those good things we, we, that are entrenched, I guess, in over time. Um, mm. But yes, yeah, very fair to say, different regions, different species, and and different uh, situations. You, you're approaching very differently, and and every guide's got their different way too. So some guides would prefer as soon as you step out of the truck in the morning, you drop one in the chamber and safety on, and Others, uh, yeah, will often say we won't chamber around until uh, we're in a position to, uh, you know, make the final approach into into our target species. So, yes, mate, it, uh, at times does change. The gear, on the gear side, the gear's much the same to what you guys are, are used to at home and come accustomed to. The calibre's often the same. Changes a little bit in Europe, but in the UK, we shoot predominantly all, all the same stuff that's on the shelves, gun shop shelves at home is, uh, is widely available here with the addition of suppressors. And and with shotguns too, that um, shotgunning, that's also a really an eye-opener, the different styles of shotgun. I mean, and again, I've had the opportunity with, with you and we, with other people to do a whole range of styles. You know, we've got that, I remember that that driven hunt we went on to up there in York, you know, it was the tweeds, we had the breakfast beforehand, the, the shoot captain gave us a rundown, you know, we all drove around in Range Rovers every time. I, well, I always found it really interesting that how much grog we drank whilst in the company of shotguns. But anyway, that was you know, that was that was the that's the the, the modus operandi. You know, you did every after every shoot, it's a drink after you know, and uh, all that kind of you know on the pegs, the 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 clothing, the tradition, the whole process, the the amount of people involved too. You know, the the fact that you know there's it's not just it's just not a shoot captain and a number of sh shots or a number of guns. It's the drives, it's the people with the dogs, and the fact that you don't you don't pick if you shoot a bird, you don't touch it. That that's a picker upper's job, and and all that kind of the, the real interest around that. And then we you know did the did the farm shoot, which was kind of like a a more relaxed version of that, which was you know we basically walked around a farm and there was some drives and there was some static shots, and then. You know that that afternoon we spent walking around a farm with uh, a couple of guys um, with auto loaders, just basically seeing what we could scare up and and shooting pheasants as they came off the water and and all sorts of things. So you get a whole range of experience of what what hunting and especially you know um, what shooting can be. And whilst again you would go back to the fact that it's a very small country and it's a very high population uh, density. There is also a lot of different things to experience in that very small space. You know, the, the way that people approach the different parts of the shooting game is very, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Yeah, very, very fair comment. It's um, what we've talked about so far is mainly, you know, the rifles and, and shooting larger games, so to speak, and, and, um, and centred around deer. But the, the, the other side of the of the um the sport and, and the industry over here is is the birds and uh driven birds is just one type of shooting as you're saying driven shooting um i think i probably did a poor job of touching on it earlier but the uh there's a bit of controversy around it at the moment um there's a, a lot of finger pointing going on by the the greens and all the other parties and uh the thought of rearing birds each season to be released and then and then shot um, doesn't sit well with everyone, but that's deeply entrenched in English history. Um, so that goes, you know, a long, long way back. And I, 
I'm possibly wrong, but I, I believe I'm, I'm right in saying that I think driven shooting first started at Holcomb Estate over in Norfolk, which is the home of the, the bowler hat as well, um, for anyone that's into their hats. Um, but yeah, that, that's the first start place they started uh, you know, using teams of people to, to drive birds over standing guns and, and uh, their shooting, uh, driven shooting or shooting off pegs was born. And uh, if, again, much like uh, Scotland with the deer, if, if anyone gets an opportunity to, to be a part of a driven day, and, and that's not just shooting, if they come to the UK and they're interested in the, in the outdoors and seeing how a driven day unfolds, it's, it's a wonderful event to go and experience. And as Mark touched on it, it, the amount of money that driven shooting brings to the local economy is just unbelievable. It's it's valued into the billions now, not not mm. hundreds of millions, but billions now that it brings each year. Um, and the teams of people, you know, uh, commercial driven shoots a little different to to the one that Mark touched on. We went on up in Yorkshire, which is one of the homes of driven shooting in the UK. They've got amazing topography up there, and they can throw some of the the highest birds in the country, and it, it's a pretty special place. But on days like that, it's it's not uncommon to all meet at um, meet at the site, which is often a, a stately home of sorts or, or an estate home on an estate, and you'll have the shoot captain for the day and the um, yeah certainly the gamekeeper uh, will normally deliver a speech in the morning, and you might have uh, a team of between eight and twelve guns are normally shooting. Quite often, those guns, depending on where you're at, will have loaders as well that are loading for them through the day. Um, so there's another eight or twelve people. You can you can have a, a team. Your gamekeeper team is often you know four to ten gamekeepers on a lot of shoots. Then you've got pickers up, which are often people from the local community that bring their dogs out. So typically trained uh, you know Labradors and Retrievers as well as uh, as well as your um, Spaniels. Um, and, and they will stand often behind the guns and, you know, uh, after a bird drops, they'll send the dogs out to, to pick up the birds, so to speak. And then driving the birds, you've got a team of, of beaters, which again is young kids and people just generally interested in the outdoors that want a bit of exercise on the weekend. And they, they walk and flank in birds from all different angles around a typically a large timbered area uh, with their flags and they they drive the birds into a position where they start to lift and, and push back over the guns that are waiting down on their pegs. And so it's fair in a, in a commercial shoots are even larger again, but in your average side um, state shoot around the country, you'll often involve, you know, upward of 30 to 40 people just in a, in a shoot day. Uh, and it, it's really lovely environment being part of all that. Hospitality is a, a, plays a big part in it. And the day is often started by a, a full cooked breakfast and then you'll go on to a series of these drives throughout the day um, or alternatively you often have two or three of these drives breaking for 11sies um, or smoko and 11 o'clock at the end of one drive Swing they'll seats. lay on Swing. yeah they'll <laughs> lay on a table with some nice uh, yeah nice couple of drinks and uh, sharp ones in the morning and some some food and then you'll break for a, a full sit down, a couple, two, often three course lunch uh, before going out and enjoying the afternoon's drive. So, yeah, that, look, they all unfold and they're all run slightly differently. But um, the way you go about it, it's the same. A gun on the day turns up and here's uh, what's on the cards, what can be shot, how the day is going to unfold. And then very traditionally, you tend to draw your peg for the day. And you go around and this is all undertaken in a bit of it's not a ceremony but it's it's almost like a ceremony in the way that the day starts and have a beverage and draw your peg and that's the peg that you start your first drive on and then each drive through the day that the gun will move up 
normally up two pegs or sometimes up three pegs. So start on one, you'll go up to three peg three or four on the next drive and so on throughout the day, which is just changing your position on, you know, on, on the line of guns, so to speak, as every drive goes on and your opportunity. Um, so yeah, it, it's very different. I, I, um, the first time you go on one of these events, certainly as a gun, it's a bit, it's a little uh, almost daunting, I suppose. You, you don't really know uh, exactly what's going on until it all starts to unfold. And next thing you know, you've got, uh, yeah, you've got pheasants with their wings spread and uh, and set and sailing over you at some height, and you're, you're trying to pull them down. So it's uh, a wonderful experience. If you if you enjoy, enjoy bird shooting, it's uh, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic way to experience um, and grouse even more so. You know, I've not uh, shot driven grouse yet, and it's uh, it's a very expensive pastime to be involved in. So um we won't touch too much on the cost but yeah it costs a bloody lot of money to go on a day's driven grouse shooting uh however i was going to ask um and not that i want to go into cost too much um but you said the word billions earlier and i'm 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 listening intently but also madly trying to punch out one billion divided by two hundred thousand (laughs) hunters equals five thousand dollars a hunter um, you know, per year uh, expense going into, uh, you know, shooting birds. Um, yes. You know, if you do it that way, obviously there's more people other than those on the guns um, that are, you know, involved in this whole process. It's not just 10 blokes with guns. There's all of the entourage no, exactly. and everyone else that's around it. What's the percentage of gun holders in a day's um, driven bird shooting yeah, compared I'll to those that aren't in- with guns? Yeah, yeah that, that depends slightly on the size of the shoot. Um, but typically, if you if you went on a, a nice local shoot, they call it a 200-bird day that are usually held on a 1,000 to 2,000-acre property, uh, would, would normally generate that sort of day. There'd be 8 to 10 guns, depending on time of year. And typically, in that size of a day, 25 to 30 people behind the scenes, right. you know, yeah. putting that yeah. day on. But when I comment on billions, that's what it brings to the local economy, not just the direct shooting side of it, but sure. it, it's the sure. hotels over on the nights before. It's, uh, you know, oh, local yeah. supermarkets. You, you the can see it. It's oh, the same with well, our yeah, hunting. Exactly the yeah, same when we're, you exactly. know, we're cruising down to New South Wales and, you know, buying fuel and buying food and spending our money in those towns. It's really important. It's just a big number that just went, yeah. wow, that's a, you know, that they're big numbers for the small amount of license um, gun holders there. There's there's obviously yeah. a lot more to that, um, clearly, but that's all right. Um, so without no, getting definitely. into too much of the cost, I was keen on that before you went on to grouse, but grouse becomes a, it's a different story again. Oh, definitely, yeah. To get, I can give you a rough idea. So the going rate on a, on a partridge day, most estates tend to charge by the bird. So, and the, the going rate this season is 37 pounds a bird plus VAT. So that's what the charge is to the gun shooting. Now, you do the math. If you're on a, a 300 bird day, at, um, at, yeah, that, that sort of cost, that's where you start to see the average peg you're spending, a couple of grand just to stand on the peg and shoot for the day. Plus, plus, plus. And, and that cost is and the hunters, is, is the shooters, you know, there's, there's not cost to the, the other 20-odd people around them, you know, the support people. No, that they're often paid. 
So yeah, and, and the guns right. will pay them by way of tips at the end of the day or or that charge per bird. Then the gamekeepers, are, that's their full-time job. So they're, they're paid by the estate as, as a, a contract farmer or anyone would be in that sense. Um, yeah, you'll, you'll often have a team of um, the cooks or the chef and what have you that are associated with the estate as well. And it's just part, part of their job is turning on the hunt days. Um, the, pe- the beaters and the pickers up that come along, uh, can earn typically between uh, 20 and 50 pounds a day is, is what they make as their wage, depending on what their duties might be. And a lot of them uh, aren't even interested really in the shooting. It's It might be that they like to work their dogs and train their dogs in retrieving. It might just be like they like their exercise and it's a great way of getting exercise when you're walking tens of miles pushing and flanking in birds and all sort of country as well. But um, yeah, that, that's about where the, the, the costs of a, a pheasant day are. If you, if you work on that 37 pounds a bird plus VAT, so what are we looking at there? Just over 70 Aussie dollars plus the VAT, call, call it 85 bucks Australian to shoot one bird. Mm-hmm. So you can see how these days quickly escalate. Um, Grouse is often charged then by the brace, so two birds as opposed to singly. And I think the rate this season's gone up slightly to just over 120 pounds of brace plus VAT. So, yeah, you start breaking that down again, you're at, you know, 120, 135, 140 Aussie dollars a, a single bird to shoot. So And it's probably unkosher to take your two and say, thanks, fellas, I've had enough. <laughs> Most definitely. No, you are expected to be there and uh, try and fill the bag that's available on that day. So, yeah, look, it's it's not for everyone in that sense. It's um, not everyone can sort of afford that sort of money. And uh, but look, there's a there's a long English gentry, shall we say, that each season partake in numerous of these days at costs of uh, two and three thousand to upwards of six and seven thousand pounds a day to stand on a peg. Um and shoot driven birds but uh no the, the grouse is is pretty special to see mate it's um happens in the north of england and up the borders and into scotland uh grouse are a fantastic bird when they fly They're very very fast but they don't gain the height uh, vertically that that your pheasants do um but grouse are uh yeah short stocky bird they they, they come out and often uh yeah just go for leather parallel to the ground straight back through the guns and between the guns and um it's, it's very exciting high speed action so yeah uh, yeah pretty, pretty neat kind of stuff that's so that's your, your main driven that's done there uh i touched on partridge and pheasant a lot of shoots will will put both birds down partridge and pheasant uh pheasant fly differently if, if conditions are right pheasants will lift vertically quite high out of the timber and then find a line and then travel on that line as they progress to a surrounding wood and hopefully that's over the top of the line of the guns and they'll often lift in numbers um your partridge tend to be in their cubbies and they'll come out in a little covey of birds together and and that can be anything from four or five birds to you know 20 plus depending on whether they're english or or european partridge and they fly slightly differently and they they fly lower than a pheasant and move a fair bit quicker um, a pheasant, once he's up and sets his wings, he tends to maintain the same line as they come on through, whereas a, a partridge can jink a little bit more and, and tip their wings and really roll with the topography of the land and or the wind uh, up their backside or, or into their head, um, depending on which way it's going. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're different birds to shoot and, and the approach and how you address each one changes slightly. But that's, um yeah, driven shooting. It's often, it's very exciting. You can be stood on the peg and uh, for you know, a drive can go from anything from 10 to 15 minutes through to half an hour plus, 40 minutes plus even on the big shoots. And 
you can be stood there with not a whole lot of action and then all of a sudden you've got birds coming as fast as you can load that under and over they're uh, sailing over your head so it's a uh, yeah it can can be frantic and a, a lot of fun at times so mm. Sounds no, good. not nice way, and very, very different. I know it's starting to gain popularity in in parts of Victoria, and certain, certainly Tassie. You've got a couple of commercial shoots now that are offering uh, pheasant shooting over there, and I think it'll continue to gain popularity. And certainly, uh, you're seeing more keepers coming across from New Zealand as well now to to learn the trade here in the UK and return home with, uh, you know, estates and larger farms looking to put birds down in the coming years in Australia. So I, I think you will see that grow in popularity there, and. Um, but that's just one element of the bird shooting. Mark, Mark talked on earlier. Second and, and most popular is probably, uh, well, for the masses and because the cost isn't there, is walked up shooting, often done over the top of your dog or, um, you know, you're just picking a, a nice area of a local farm and you're walking the hedges on the farm or the edge of the timber and you might send your dog in and, off, well, you often send your dog in if you've got a reasonable one and he'll, he or she will push those birds up in front of you and um yeah not not too dissimilar to what the american school um, you know lowland shooting um, they tend to do it with an auto gun and at pretty close ranges um, we tend to try and do it here with the dogs they, they often shoot over pointers in the us is a lot more common they'll point hold and the shots are often at you know 25 through 40 yards is pretty common in the lowland shooting over there um, here's a little different. You'll, you'll get your a well-trained dog will work about 40 yards out in front of you. Um, you'll let that bird rise and, and start to set off before looking at taking a shot there. And Mark's had the opportunity to experience a little bit of that when he was over. And it's um, yeah, I, there's a lot to be said for shooting over your dog if you've invested the time in in training it and what have you to see your dog working and and putting those birds up and offering an opportunity to shoot that bird and and go and pick it and retrieve it. So, um, yeah, it's it's bringing that that connection all together, and you invest a lot of time trying to get him to to work with you like that. And it's it's nice, it's lovely to watch a, a good trained dog. Um, but yeah, that that's a nice way to enjoy for for the average chap that doesn't have a uh, endless pocket, shall we say, to enjoy some pheasant or partridge shooting is to to do it walked up over over the top of dogs. It's um yeah, it's good fun. More more uh, reactive shooting, shall I say? You can not so much from the hip, but I mean it happens a bit quicker driven shooting you can often see the birds coming from a long ways out and you've got time to set and you know approach your shot often uh especially woodcock and some of the faster moving birds when you if you get an opportunity to see them flush from their cover um they dart and they jink and they're moving at high speed so it's it's more snap shooting if you like and um yeah again different folks tend to prefer that too but it, it offers something nice and i think it it's again it's as i touched on with the deer you can do a lot of uh, walked up shooting just after work you can literally go and work walk the edge of a woodland and, and enjoy a bit of walked up on your way home of the night so there's nice opportunity to be able to do that and with shotgun licenses easier to obtain and land to shoot birds on much easier to obtain than land to shoot a rifle on for deer um, it tends to be a really really popular pastime and yeah now's the time of year um in addition, as I say, you've got your wildfowl season, which is not a lot different to at home. We don't have the the inland lakes necessarily like you do in, in parts of Victoria and, and southern New South. But, um, yeah, we certainly have nice coastal wildfowl shooting uh, coming into the rig rivers and tributary systems, um, which offers excellent sport at times. But we get a lot of uh, on the inland, on the ponds and straight, straight out the front of where our office is here is a, a set of fishing lakes. Um, we're on about a thousand acres here too and, and lovely set in the countryside and on those lakes uh, at the right time of year are geese so we get hordes and hordes of canada geese here so 
we're fortunate that you know after uh, work in the season we can go out and put up a couple of hides and get the geese up and flying and uh, yeah enjoy a bit of goose shooting in the evening as well and and probably the the of all the winged bird shooting as such in the UK the one that's um, most people tend to uh, venture towards is um, is shooting pigeons. Yeah, that I mean that's where I actually my first experience shooting in the UK was on pigeons. You know, so that's I suppose to give it a description, that's a decoy shooting from a blind. So you set up a blind and you set up the various decoys, uh, very much like ducks. You know, different types of decoy. And what you're trying to do is you're off you're often over a crop field. And you're trying to bring the pigeons into to the to the crop. It's often part of a pest management approach. So you know you are you are basically trying to cull pigeons on 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 a crop. But it is a very it's it's a great great way to shoot. Um, it, as I said, it's like duck shooting, but of course it's you know it's over a crop rather than over a water, a water either a lake or a pond or or a river or something like that. But boy, pigeon shooting is very very fun. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And it's, uh, as I say, I've not had the opportunity to shoot driven grouse. Um, <clears throat> and those that have speak very, very highly of it. But uh, pigeon shooting on a windy day are, are the most challenging birds I've, I've ever lifted a gun to. They're, um, they move quicker than, than the other birds we've just talked about. They, they jink, they turn, they never hold their lines. They're, they're always moving all the time. And if you can get them on a a day with a really really strong crosswind and and the property you're on's got some elevation oh my goodness your shot rate isn't fantastic uh <laughs> yeah it, it makes good shooters look pretty ordinary so they're, they're great fun um first and foremost the pigeon shooting here in the uk is done for crop protection and that, that is part of our license that um it's uh how do i say it's not a sensitive subject we all enjoy it as a sport while we're out there doing it but primarily that's what we're there to do is to control them off the off the crops so um, you know, main times a year for, for pigeon shooting can vary, but they tend to be around uh, either when crops are being harvested or you've just got seed coming through uh, are the two, you know, key times that uh, pigeon populations are high and, and need to control. And unfortunately, the, the mark's been over around that Christmas period the last couple of times it's been in the UK and it's not it's not the greatest time of year for pigeon shooting, to be honest. The, the summertime, spring-summertime period is by far bigger numbers, but... Right in saying that, yeah, the majority of it is done behind a blind and um, over a set of decoys that are staged out in, in the edge of the crop. Um, and if you can coincide that with a, a flight line, what they know is a flight line, the line that pigeons normally tra transit on morning and afternoon, whether that be from from a city nearby or from one prominent wood where they've roosted overnight on venturing on to another prominent wood in the area. So if you can for, try and find that flight line, uh, set up your decoys with the wind in your favour over crop that they might want to feed on. Um, yeah, it's it's some amazing shooting to be had, and uh, a great way to learn how to to shoot birds as well, how to lead birds, and yeah, it's, um, how to swing your gun, move your gun properly, and and also your posture, how how to address birds properly and, and shoot them. So it's no, it's a really really enjoyable pastime. Um, and the other way to, to shoot pigeons is what they call just flight lining, and that's what we tend to do a lot of the time at this time of year. Um, so you find uh, uh, often late in the afternoon, that 15, 20 minutes just before sundown, the birds will start returning from either the crops where they've been feeding out in the countryside from the local town or city, and they'll return to those roosting uh, where they when they tend to roost in those uh, major wooded areas. And if you can set yourself inside the roosted area on a flight line, then you're, you're shooting 
uh, single birds often that are coming up at uh, some height and they they offer fantastic challenge as well um, to reshoot those and and that that's the same with crows so we, we shoot the crows exactly the same way that we shoot the pigeons so same thing over decoys so set up crow decoys out in the field and and shoot them like that especially around harvest time or roost shoot crows as they're returning to uh, to nest in the evening as well so yeah it's um, very uh very enjoyable offers a lot of banter often and it's very sociable event because <laughs> you can put two or three of you in a hide and um yeah pulling the mick out of each other on an afternoon's pigeon shooting is hard to beat so yeah, it's good fun yeah it's certainly yeah. It's, it's probably one of the you know for a visitor it's certainly the, um, if you can find a, a guide who does pigeon shooting it's it's a very um it's a very economical way to get into having some fun and for me what i most like about it is use auto loaders uh, you know, yeah. when you the driven shoots with their tradition, they they frown upon, and I mean when they frown upon that is they don't let you use things like older loaves. But the, the pigeon guys, not a problem. So you know, you get to play around with some very nice uh, auto loaders while you whacking pigeons. That's quite a quite an enjoyable afternoon. I remember the first time I did, I was um, shooting with uh, Jonathan actually, who we're going to have on the podcast, and he was saying he said. Why are you putting three shots into every pigeon? And I said, because I can. <laughs> because I've got it in my hand, I can do it. So, boom, boom, boom. And uh, yeah. when I did that one that one day that walk around. I was using that uh, little twenty gauge uh, uh, Remington auto loader. That was a lovely little little shotgun. I tell you something. I wish, I wish we could get those here. It's a wonderful little thing to own, and um, it was a you know just a joy to use. So certainly the pigeon. Yeah. I found I actually find the pigeon shooting really really enjoyable as you said because it's very sociable you're in that blind um you know here they come here they come quick quick don't look up don't show your face oh, you know you scared them off and you're going too early and stuff like that because they will they you know they they're they're birds that suffer from predation they are they're very aware of what's going on they can see your face looking at them from a long way away and they, any kind of movement, they'll flare, they'll jink, they'll they'll pull out of the pull out of the dive the whole lot. So it's really really good fun pigeon uh, pigeon shooting from a blind. Really good fun. It is, yeah, definitely. You touched on a couple of points there. The auto loaders um, under our license in the UK, they've got to be restricted to a maximum of three shots. Um, you, you can get a higher capacity, but like New Zealand, well, I, I don't think it was, I don't know if it still is, but like New Zealand was to get a greater capacity is a higher class of license, so to speak. And it, to have a five, seven, ten shot auto loader has to go on your firearms license here in the UK. So for that reason, the majority of autos here are uh, three shots. So. Uh, two in the mag tube and, and one in the chamber, so to speak. But, yeah, it, it's good fun and, and opens up a different type of firearm than we're used to shooting it uh, back at home in Australia. Um, and secondly, yeah, when we talk about visitors, um, again, if you come into the UK in summertime, it, it's the most accessible way to get into shooting is uh, source the services of a local guide who can put you on nice land. Who'll, they'll set up your um, your hide for you and, and get you all ready to go and, and often sit with you. But it's relatively inexpensive you can you know uh, expect to pay 100 120 quid for for half a day's uh, shooting mm. out in the field on pigeons so you know a couple hundred bucks 250 bucks aussie it's it's very reasonable for in this day and age and plus some cartridge costs on top of that just depending on how many cartridges you shoot but um yeah very very affordable um and yeah yeah good good uh, use of a, a natural resource and 
and way of controlling it and doing something for the for the farmer as well so yeah that's no, a good fun certainly yeah certainly good fun well it's a um a very detailed look at what the what the uk has to offer there seems to be a hell of a lot more than i knew about not that i've been there to hunt i've, I've been over a few times now i've seen some animals and and you, and you see a lot in social media um you don't get the feel for it really by looking at it on social media i did watch one uh video of a guy that went over and did a driven a driven hunt and and it looked amazing very very well completely different but similar in in the community style i guess as to some of the hound hunters down in victoria you know they make a life a lifestyle out of it and it's a real community sort of approach so um yeah, it'll be a really interesting one to, to get in amongst next time I'm over there uh, when COVID lets us get across the borders and onto planes and, and travelling again. It'll be a really interesting one. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, mate. I think um, that's fair to say a lot of the UK, or, you know, often a lot of places out, outside of Australia when you're travelling, the, the opportunities are often unrecognised till you get to the country and immerse yourself in uh, the people, the lifestyle, and then all these things start to become apparent. Um, but yeah, that, very fair to say that there are a lot of really good shooting opportunities in the UK. Uh, you got to dig a little, you got to talk to the right people, but um, it's a, in a densely populated area, relatively few shooters, and um, yeah, it's a, a relatively tight-knit community, not, not unlike Australia in a lot of ways. So. No, some nice opportunities to be had here. Very varied opportunities. It's um, you can be pigeon shooting in the afternoon, deer stalking first light the next morning, and then uh, the right time of year, you know, have a flight of geese or ducks in the afternoon too. You can do that all within the space of fifteen uh, miles from your local pub, where you can enjoy a beverage that night. So, <laughs> no, no, so. yeah, no, sounds like it. Before we uh, before we wrap up, um, and outside of uh, all of the conversation about UK hunting, what's next for Steve? What's on your list of things that you'd like to achieve over the next couple of years, uh, borders being open and, and being allowed to do so? Um, oh, first, uh, we, we've had to postpone a trip to um, Kyrgyzstan at the moment, so I, I'm busting to get over to Kyrgyzstan at the moment. Um, one of our, our guys that works for us, Tom Mo over in Europe, has got a, uh, a really nice guiding and outfitting operation on the side of the work he does with us. And, yeah, I'm busting to get up in the high country there, mate. It's it's going to get very difficult in parts of mid-Asia and, and uh, Eastern Europe to start chasing Marco Polo. There's, there's some really... Uh, yeah, incoming uh, tough licenses. There's going to be fewer opportunities and tickets available to outfitters as well. So um, it, it's a shame because they can't drastically link that to, to population at the moment. So it's just a stance that a few of the governments have made and it's been supported, unfortunately. So, yeah, I, I'd love to get over there and um, and certainly do that. And we were planning, we should be over there uh, about a week ago, to be honest. So, yeah, all, all being well when the borders open up properly and some sort of normality returns, that's high on the on the priority list, mate. And, um, yeah, I'm working towards, I've got a few work trips to do to the US next year as well. So I'd, I'd like to put in a, a backcountry hunt for elk as well mm. is, is high on the list so abroad they're the the next two hunts that i'll be on hopefully in in 2022 and uh and locally yeah just a, i'm fortunate that i've acquired a bit more land around us here in the midlands so there's more deer shooting opportunities there i've i'm chasing a seeker stag i've, I've got my other five um you know bucks and stags so He's the last one I need. One of those road traffic accidents I mentioned earlier was actually a seeker stag, but I'm not sure I can count that. Uh, so, yeah. I, oh, you I, might, I, you I, might be able to, but deep down you won't do it. 
exactly yeah it, let's just say his head's in the garage not on the wall in the house um but yeah no, nonetheless I'd, I'd like to try and uh, track him down if i can so but yeah yeah that's it it's mate it's been uh i think moving across the world it's been head down bum up on the work side and and make a name and do the right things to uh you know offer that stability for family and all those other important things in life. So I, I, much like a lot of us the last couple of years, haven't had as many opportunities as I would like to have or would usually have to get out there hunting. But um, yeah, look, uh, families, uh, kids are growing up a little bit more at the moment. Uh, as you say, COVID opening back up, uh, been in the job a little while now. So yeah, naturally opportunities become more readily available. But look, busting to get home as well. Yeah, it's been a couple of years since I've been back home. Um, busting to get back home, see see the family, friends, and uh, yeah, go and chase some piggies around uh, Mooney, Moree, uh, up in that country too. So. Yeah. Oh well, make sure you look us up when you when you get back up this direction, passing through the Darling Downs. Um, we might be able to sort something out for you too. We're um, we're uh, starting to get a, a little bit excited that our borders in Queensland are going to open up for us sometime in the next couple of weeks uh, as we hit a certain percentage number of, of vaccinated people. So we've got, uh, I think we've, we've got seven, seven uh, hunts booked for our local hunting club and um, we're, we're just hoping that we can cross the border and, and, and attack those. So anyway, um, I'm, I'm, sure oh, you'll, I'm, sure, I'm sure you'll have the same dream. Um, hoping that you can get overseas so that's been really good yeah no absolutely and uh yeah likewise mate if you're ever over this side of the pond then just sing out with uh, there's a few uh bits of the english countryside we'd love to show you and uh, yeah, a few critters that you wouldn't mind seeing in your sights i'm sure yeah no fantastic thank you for that mark oh look i mean it's um it's been a funny one because all i'm thinking about is so are we going next Christmas or are we going? Oh, no, I'm just thinking, I'm just explaining what my what Christmas 2022 2023 is looking like. Certainly, there's certainly certain things I want to do, but and, and not not only the hunting. I want to catch up with good friends face to face. Steve being one of them, you know. Um, but certainly, uh, it's it has been. A, it, I was actually surprised when you said you've been there for six years. Because you know, I kind of thought, oh, it's been a couple of years. No, it's been it's it's been a while. So yeah, that that really threw me. Uh, yeah. We've been, we've been hunting together for a while now, so that's it. Um, but certainly, what I found by having the time to hunt somewhere like England, and be it you know England or be it New Zealand or anywhere else around the world, is that there is opportunity there. You just gotta you've just gotta realize that you're not looking at it through the same lens. Mm. you've got to look through the lens of the, of where you're at and once you once you get your head around that um and also not being uh you know, i suppose strong-willed enough to actually accept that people do things completely differently to where you come from if you can get your head around that there's there's an abundance of hunting opportunities wherever you go um you know that one thing i haven't done so far in england is i haven't fished i, I really wouldn't mind have a go actually that's true no i did have a fish in 96 I'd have a fish in 96 but i haven't had a fish for a while so i'd actually like to have a fish over there as well because there's certainly you know certain species i'd like to target there as well so for a small place there's lots and lots of opportunities and as i said there's some there's some great networks over there so mate i really appreciate you taking the time mm. uh, i would have liked to hear a little bit about where you're at now but uh, i suppose we've, we've you know we've we've come to a natural conclusion 
Yeah, look, we've we, we tried to skirt around and cover a fair bit in one topic, but by all means, guys, if there's an opportunity later date, we can we can talk about industry and gear and the movements and where that's going over the next period of time, absolutely. And yeah, I'd close yeah, Thank you very much for the opportunity and having me on board. And I guess just to reiterate on what Mark said there for any of the listeners, if you're if you're venturing to the UK and Europe, I I would recommend approaching your hunting opportunities with just an open mind. Um, you know, we've all done a little bit. We've all, all got some experiences here and there. But if you approach each hunt with an open mind and the people that you're, you're going to meet, the cultures that you can immerse yourself in, uh, yeah, there are some fabulous opportunities. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, we all become a little bit more learned and enjoy these new experiences. It's not a bad thing. Seems like a good way to end up. Thank you. So um, thanks very much for your time, buddy. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Good to see you guys. Look after yourself. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, mate.